Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It is Thursday, December 27th. We've got the whole gang in the studio for part two of the never-ending podcast discussion. Hey, <laughs> I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Shannon Jones, Jason Moser, and Nick Seipel. What's up, guys? Not a whole lot. <laughs> Feel like we were just here. Yeah, right. It's like it's like we maybe got up from our chairs, took a sip of water, and sat back down. Uh, so r- rather run through our standard programming for the holidays. If you're just tuning into this episode, go back and check out the one before it. Uh, we are getting together to have a group discussion of 2018, some things to watch in 2019. Uh, it's just kind of a fun way to round out the episodes for the 2018 Can year. Can I make a quick plug, Dylan? Oh. If you want to check out that episode, you can actually check us out a number of different ways. Uh, One of which would be, of course, iTunes, you've got Stitcher, but more importantly, Dylan over here has set up our very own YouTube channel. If you go to youtube.com slash The Motley Fool, you can pull up that episode and more. You know what my favorite part about the fact that our podcast videos are now posted to YouTube are? The comments, (laughs) I see at least one a week where it's like, you guys don't look like what I thought you looked like. <laughs> and I never know. I'm like, I'm not sure if that's a compliment or a diss. That's, uh, you know, so I, I may be dating myself here, but that reminds me of if you've ever seen the movie Smokey and the Bandit, where he says you sounded a lot taller on radio. <laughs> And actually, you know who gets that comment the most? Uh, Bill Barker and Chris Hill. Oh, the episodes yeah. that they do that. together. Yeah. So when I first met Chris Hill, that was not who I was expecting at all. Yeah. Yeah. He surprises everyone. <laughs> um, and if you want to see us in person, another plug. Yes. Let us know. Yeah. You can come by, by HQ. Here, we love having people come by. So if you're in the Washington D.C. area and you want to check out a taping or just come say hi to the team, uh, by all means. Um, we're going to pick up the discussion that we were having last episode, talking about a couple fun things from 2018, maybe some forgotten stories, as well as uh, some good comeback stories. Why don't we start out with a category that we are calling Hey Remember? Uh, so this is stuff that maybe got lost in the flurry of all those macro headlines that we were talking about last episode. Anyone want to hop in here first? I'll grab it first. So in our last episode, we were talking a little bit about unicorns. So hey guys, do you remember a unicorn called Theranos? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So it's it's when I went back and looked, I was amazed. So Theranos was a blood testing company um, who actually finally shut their doors in September of this year. Um, for those that have been following, this has been a multi-year saga. At one point, this company was valued at over $9 billion. Never went public, thankfully. Um, it was valued over $9 billion. Had huge investors, uh, some of which were prior secretaries of state that were <laughs> investing into this company, all on the premise that you could have, with a very maybe one, two drops of blood, you could actually go and diagnose a bunch of different diseases. So, Elizabeth Holmes, who everyone knows had the, the, the black turtleneck uh, look going on, um, she went around saying that this technology could do all of these things that it really couldn't even managed to garner a partnership with Walgreens. Walgreens started to set up clinics to actually house uh, these machines, but that all came tumbling down. I've heard it called a house of cards, and truly it was, because the machines did absolutely nothing. Also, I'm going to put a quick plug in for the book Bad Blood by John Carreyou. Um, That was a book that I uh, purchased, finished it in like three days. I was amazed by uh, the amount of fraud that was going on with this company. But um, as it turns out, none of it worked 
the founder and her partner um, are now, I think they settled with the SEC, but are facing criminal charges. Um, so it'll be more to come in 2019. But it's amazing just how quickly a lot of these unicorns can spring up. We talked about a frothy IPO market. This is a perfect example of one that went completely south. And what I think is such a good takeaway from that story, uh, I'm reminded a little bit of uh, the Bernie Madoff story, where you had not just retail investors, but supposedly sophisticated investors getting wrapped up in a major fraud. Uh, and, and it's a good reminder that the story can be great, but you need to kick the tires on what's actually going on with the business, whether it's you know the financial statements, which were proven to be just made up in the Madoff case, or the actual technology underlying the supposed breakthrough and blood testing. There's got to be something there. And in this case, it wasn't just you know uh, people that were you know well known or, or strong investors. These were major companies like Walgreens that were <laughs> that were buying into this technology, kind of blindly. Yeah, very blindly. And I think, you know, it's the financials. And if you're a healthcare investor, really go and look at published journals, look at the trial data, see what's out there. And if you can't interpret it, find somebody who can before you start investing. And I, I, one of the things I love about The Motley Fool, um, something that we always encourage is, you know, invest in the things that you do know. A lot of these big name investors knew nothing about, and even the people that were on the board of Theranos had no sort of medical background, knew nothing about diagnostics, yet still were pouring billions of dollars into this company. Dylan, I think that's a perfect takeaway for investors. I'm wondering if this category is going to become the cautionary tale category. <laughs> because uh, Maybe. my my Hey Remember is Hey Remember when Helios and Matheson was a $250 million company. Uh, and listeners, if you don't recognize the name Helios and Matheson, perhaps you will recognize the name MoviePass. Uh, this was the uh, fund that decided to scoop them up and try to turn them into a serious business. Um, and I, I say cautionary tale. I mean, this was something that rose about as quickly as it fell. Uh, you look back at the first nine months of 2018. Uh, Helios and Matheson booked 205 million in revenue. On that, they had cost of goods sold of 420 million. So wow. before even getting to their operating expenses, they had gross losses of over 200 million dollars on revenue of about 200 million dollars. And, and I, yeah, it's just there's no way to defend a business model like that, right? Uh, and and I think to a certain extent there was some hubris from the venture cap private equity world of you know we can take this business and turn it into something truly transformative. Um, but the lesson here I think for investors is you know if, if the business model doesn't look sustainable, it doesn't matter what stage two is because you got to get through stage one. Yep, that's exactly it. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it's the simplest question in the world, but I mean I pose it to everyone. When you're looking at a new idea, the first question, how do they make money? And I mean, it seems like a simple question, but sometimes people step back for a second and say, wait, I'm not actually quite sure how they make money or, or if it's something that is either sustainable or can they even grow it? And, and it, particularly today with, with all of these tech companies that are, that are coming out and yeah, they generate plenty of revenue, but their costs outweigh, outweigh that revenue considerably. And, and you have to be able to find that road to profitability at some point. And if you can't, then you really, Need to be taking the thing with a grain of salt. Yeah, and the reason I mention this story too is that you look at just beyond the business model. Once it had fallen pretty low and was deep in penny stock territory, there were a lot of other signs that this was something that investors should stay away from if they weren't dissuaded by the fact that it was in penny stock territory. You know, you see the financial engineering going into reverse stock splits so they don't, <laughs> so that they don't get delisted. Two one, like, yeah, <laughs> no joke. And then they tried to do a five hundred to one stock split, wow. yeah, and that was really. to offset 
all of the dilution that they'd created selling shares to raise cash to fund the unsustainable business. And uh, so, if you see these types of things, these are red flags as an investor that I think you just got to be aware of. Uh, I think Helios and Matheson is going to be something that is studied in business classes for decades. Most likely. <laughs> Most likely one of a few. Yeah, Jamo, what do you have for Hey Remember? Well, I mean, everybody remember when Wells Fargo used to be this upstanding citizen <laughs> of the banking world? <laughs> not so much anymore, huh? So it is a cautionary tale. Um, it cautionary is a cautionary tale. tale. It's not been a good year for Wells Fargo. The stock is down somewhere around the 20% range today as they continue uh, to struggle putting a number of scandals behind it. I mean, there was it, there was this period of time where it seemed like it was Bank of America that just couldn't avoid stepping in something every day. And really, they've passed that title on to Wells Fargo, it seems now. And I mean, this this is pretty phenomenal when you think about it, because Wells Fargo really is the biggest bank in, in regard to mortgage lending. I mean, they, they have such a, a corner on the mortgage market here domestically, which is such a big part of our economy. And then to see how mismanaged this company was down to the banking center level. Um, I mean, having worked in that industry for a time and working as a loan officer with Bank of America and seeing how those incentive programs are developed. I mean, those incentive programs promote bad behavior. I mean, it's 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 phenomenal to me that leadership can't see that and until it's too late. Um, and, and so now, like you've got Wells Fargo over the summer, they had to go back to the Fed with a plan. They needed a, a plan for regulators uh, for improving their compliance and operational risk. Uh, Management within the company, they they submitted their plan to the Fed, and guess what? The Fed sent it back. <laughs> they said, "Nope, try again." <laughs> wow. And so, until they're able to actually come up with something that appeases regulators, Wells Fargo is operating under this asset ca- uh, cap where they they essentially can't grow until they make regulators happy and say, "Well, we've come up with this plan, so we can ensure that this is not going to happen again." Um, I'm not convinced, actually, that Tim Sloan, the CEO of the company, should be CEO because remember he was hired internally when Stump, the CEO who was heading the heading the ship here, stepped down because of all this stuff that started. It, it seems like you're bringing someone in internally who was part of the problem to begin with, and and I think that's that's creating some some trouble there. They're having challenges trying to get past all of this. Um, so I, you know, I mean, we've talked about Wells Fargo for a long time as being a great bank. Warren Buffett owns a big slug of it through Berkshire Hathaway. Um, Matt Frankel was noting a couple of weeks ago that Berkshire did sell some of their Wells Fargo stake, but that wasn't because they were disgusted with Wells Fargo. It's just they're trying to keep that ownership below ten percent. Um, I don't own Wells Fargo shares. I don't think I'd want to buy Wells Fargo shares. Um, that said, for investors who know their line. You probably have a stock here that, at some point or another, is going to uh, appreciate considerably in value. You have to believe at some point or another they're gonna they're gonna get these uh, regulatory issues straightened out. And once they do that, they're still gonna have this massive share of the mortgage market. Um, but yeah, it, it's just you see mismanaged companies like this, and no matter how big the competitive advantage is, poor leadership can really take things down. And then that's been the case here with Wells. So what? Are the signs that the ship is being righted there? Well, I mean, I think you you look for things like deposits. Are are they able to bring more consumers in? Are there are they growing their deposits? Are they growing their loan book? I mean, if the Fed lifts this asset cap, that'll be a big sign right there. That'll give them permission essentially to grow again. But once they get that permission, we have to take a little bit of a leap of faith that they're not going to go back in there and do this kind of stuff again. And, and I'm not actually sold that they wouldn't because of bringing someone up internally 
uh, as opposed to maybe hiring externally. I think hiring externally was a big opportunity that that they missed. It's it's tough to shift the culture yeah. of a company that has thousands of employees. Yeah, too. and I mean that's it. It's so big, and I mean you're talking about something that that covers so many different lines of business in our country that are, that are all so important. Whether it's wealth management or insurance or mortgages, I mean money is moving around in all sorts of different ways in, in this country, and Wells Fargo has a lot to do with it. And Jason, too, do you think that, and just in terms of like red flags, as you see these banks growing. If you see a bank growing too fast, too soon, you then really have to start wondering, okay, what is it that they're doing that's actually driving the revenue higher? Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of kind of the the interplays with bank stocks because you want to grow, but that also means their loan portfolios potentially get riskier. Now you have more people that aren't paying back loans. And so you want to see growth, but I think you really want to see growth that's strong. Um, and that is sustainable and, in Wells' case, ethical. Yeah, well. and I think a lot of these banks, it's, it's, they suffer from a little bit of groupthink. I think they see one bank doing it, and then they're like, oh, okay, well, we can do it too. And then they all do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, we certainly saw that during the financial crisis and and the lending we were doing at Bank of America. I mean, I can remember a lot of days where I'd go into work and I'd be, this doesn't make sense. I mean, (laughs) how is this person taking out a million dollar loan, yet they don't really have anything at all? (laughs) Well, it turned out they didn't. And uh, and, and a lot of those loans went bad. Um, And and so, yeah, I mean, it, it is a problem where you see they kind of all get together and think, well, if one's doing it, we can all do it. And, and really, that puts a whole heck of a lot more people in a really tough spot. Nick, are we going to go four for four here with downer stories? Yeah, so st- sticking with the theme <laughs> of just epic collapses uh, of once thought of just uh, you know uh, significant um, players, let's talk about Venezuela. So once upon a time, oil prices were over a hundred dollars, and they were going to stay that way forever. And during that period of time, Venezuela Venezuela really pumped up their national budget, really started making some significant uh, social programs, and as we all know. Oil has fallen precipitously um, from that level in Venezuela's economy along with it. About half of their natural, national budget is dependent upon oil production. And based on some data from the IMF, they have a break-even based on their based on their physical policies of over $200 a barrel. So, with with the, the levels that the oil has fallen, their whole economy has really fallen to shambles. They're now pumping oil at the lowest level since the 1940s. And this is one of the nations with the most oil reserves of any country in the world. They're having significant problems with their oil infrastructures. They have over 12,000 unattended, contaminated oil waste pits pits throughout the country that are not being maintained. Um, they've had oil leak into uh, some underground transportation pipes and into rivers that have contaminated water throughout the country. Um, they, they've had massive inflation as a, as, a, as a result of kind of their entire economy collapsing. Um, so, uh, their, their uh, currency, so that you can see real dollars of their currency. They call it the Cafe Con Leche index. So, how much uh, a, a cost, uh, how much a cup of coffee with milk costs in the country? That's up over 200 times since the beginning of 2018. Um, their their health system is really collapsing. So, they've seen massive increases in malaria cases and measles, things like that across the country. So, I guess the lesson here is: don't, particularly in markets as cyclical as oil. Don't assume the current regime will be that way over the long term, and have a plan for way, the way those cycles are going to play out. Um, and this has really affected the oil markets, you know, uh, worldwide. You know, if this big of a producer as Venezuela has been, with that production coming off of the market, you know, that, that's part of what pumped oil up to high prices earlier this year, and it's really contributed to some volatility. So I think this is a story that people haven't really talked about. A country that's 
really was on the up and up for for you know decades, you know, on, on their oil wealth and all those sorts of things has really collapsed probably more than any country has in, in decades. So really significant story that's really not getting a lot of play in the media. Yeah, and they're not the only country that is heavily reliant on oil. Uh, it seems though that they are one that has really taken a hit more so than a lot of the other countries that are oil dependent. Correct. So, so the North African countries like Nigeria and Libya also have significantly high energy prices. They've been negatively affected by U.S. shale oil. Their the quality of their oil in those countries is is very similar to what we're getting out of U.S. shale. So that, that's really affected them. You know, Saudi Arabia's oil break even is up over eighty dollars a barrel. That's really uh, put some hampered on, on on their policies. You know, they have the, the Saudi Arabia twenty thirty vision where they want to diversify their revenue streams. That's really that's really kind of. Uh, put a damper on, on the ability to do that with, with oil being the levels that they're at. So there's been a lot of kind of macroeconomic effects, particularly among major oil producers, that you know these low oil prices are not just great for us getting cheap cheap oil at the pump, but it may may cause some instability in, in some of these countries. So learning my lesson from our last taping session, does anyone have anything to say <laughs> <laughs> about? Uh, hey, remember before we switch gears and talk comeback player of the year. Is he good, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Name a new section. Be like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Featuring Nick Seipel. <laughs> right. Um, all right. We're going to talk Comeback Player of the Year. And I'm so excited about mine that I'm just going to have to kick things off. I'm not going to pass the mic here. Um, my company is Twilio. Oh, and yeah. Good one. This is a company that, uh, at this point, a year ago, stock was down 63% from post-IPO highs. And there was a lot punishing this company. You had... Post IPO lockup period passing, hype wearing off. Uh, the company very famously lost some of its business from Uber. Uh, this was a relationship that led to like 10% of their top line, and Uber indicated that they were going to be slowly ratcheting that down. And that was a big shock to this business. And the revenue growth went from 60% year over year to 40% year over year in very short time. So, a ton of stuff for a recent IPO and fledgling company to really be dealing with. But you go back to Q1 of 2018, the company has totally turned around everything. I mean, their year-over-year growth was 48, 54, and now 68% for the quarters that they have reported so far in 2018, which is really just unreal. You don't expect to see that kind of transformation so quickly. They've done it a couple different ways through some customer acquisition. But I think what has impressed me most is they've built out their services. And the easiest way to see that is this is a SaaS business. So software as a service, and the key metric with these companies is the net uh, revenue retention rate or net dollar expansion rate. You can think about it as comps, basically, for the restaurant industry. Uh, in Q3 2017, that number was 122%. In the company's most recent quarter, it was 145%. Wow. So these are relationships that they already had, and getting 145% of the revenue that they were getting a year ago from those customers. Uh, on all of that. The stock is up over 250% in the past 12 months, which is just wild. Uh, this is a company that a lot of fools follow, uh, and so I'm, I'm naturally very excited. But I think CEO Jeff Lawson has just done an incredible job over there, uh, and it's great to see this company flying because uh, I think they're a really interesting business. They, they bring communication building blocks to a lot of apps, and I could see them having a pretty long runway going forward. So that is my comeback player of the year. Nick, I know you have one as well. Yeah, uh, for, for this comeback player of the year, I have Chart Industries ticker GTLS, and you know I, I really kind of struggled to find um, a, you know a company to, to kind of uh, check off this box here. So I talked to Jason Hall; he's one of our one of our uh, guests on, on the Energy Energy Show, comes on all the time, and he he mentioned Chart Industries. So Chart Industries is not a company uh, that really 
you know, it got knocked out, beat down to the mat, and popped right back up. But it is a case of a company that has really taken steps to strengthen its business over the long term, um, to put themselves in a position to be less affected by cyclicality, and to have a little bit more uh, complementary uh, synergies among their businesses. Um, they're up, they're, uh, so, what, what Chart Industries is, is they're a global manufacturer of cryogenic gas processing and storage equipment. So that, sound, that sounds really uh, a lot. <laughs> what they do is, so, so pre, uh, the market where they have a, an application uh, that probably more folks are familiar with is LNG. So, when you're liquefying natural gas to transport it internationally, um, you have to cool it down to to it reach its reaches its uh, liquid state from gas, and then maintain that uh, maintain it at that temperature as you transport it. Um, but Chart has been under, undergoing a reorganization over several years, and what that's really done is brought down their operating expenses and created more synergies um, across their business. So most recently, uh, they seg- they resegmented their business into three operating segments. Um, that's passed down 2.5 million dollars um, in SG&A reductions. Um, they've been selling off some assets that uh, weren't as uh, didn't have as many synergies with their core business. So most recently, a good example of this is they sold off a, a medical supplier. They really had no over, uh, overlaps with their underlying business, and really it had some operational issues. They had some some warranty expense issues that they really had not anticipated. They weren't equipped to uh, to handle. So they, they divested that business and they invested in a more complementary uh, business, a, a European manufacturer of pressure equipment for these cryogenic um, facilities. So. It's really added them uh, some additional synergies and really expanded their geographic footprint. Um, so, really, what, what what this company has done is through this reorganization, brought their costs down, made the business uh, have more synergies among among its operations, and has really put themselves in a position to grow over the long term. Um, they're expecting sales to be up 16 to 18 percent next year. They're having a, a backlog building up uh, for their business. As I mentioned, LNG is really starting to emerge. So. This is one of those cases of not a company that was knocked out, but really a company that's, over the past several years, taken steps to change its business and reorganize it and put themselves in, in, on a stronger footing to go forward. I was wondering where you were going to go with that, with that cryogenically <laughs> frozen, uh, it's like a Ted Williams company or something yeah. like that. Um, that's wild. Uh, I didn't realize that that played such a big role in the LNG space. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, you know, uh, the natural state uh, for natural gas is in a gaseous state, and the limitation of that is it can only really be transported by pipeline. So when you're trying to transport internationally, so if you're trying the, the big emerging markets for LNG, of course, are in uh, India and China, and where a lot of the supply has recently recently come to the market is in the U.S. Uh, from fracking. We I mean we have by many by many measures over a hundred years worth of of natural gas supply. So we've really been looking for ways to export that. Overseas, and so uh, part of these uh, cryogenic applications are going to be important to making that possible. Shannon, JMO, anything on the comeback player of the year? So I debated this, and I wouldn't even really call it a comeback player. This is a stock that's maybe coming. It hasn't really come back though, um, but I'm sure you guys have heard of it. It is actually now called Bosch Health. Formerly known as Valiant Pharmaceuticals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they even had a name change because they're really trying to put away that old poster child of, hey, we charge ridiculously high prices for drugs um, and we do really debt heavy acquisitions. So they are turning a corner, definitely not there. I will say um, the ticker symbol for Bosch Health is BCH. The stock is up about 15% year to date, which honestly I was surprised to see um, because they've had, uh, I guess, kind of inconsistent quarters. Looking at the most recent quarter, their sales were actually down 3.7% year over year. They're still operating at a loss. I think in third quarter it was $350 million. And so on the surface, 
it still looks like a company that is struggling, but they've got a new CEO. His name is Joe Papa. Papa's been good. (laughs) And in particular, um, it's about new products and really solid organic growth. And I think that's what you're starting to see. So um, they also, too, won a huge patent battle for a drug called Zyfexan, um, which I think will be key to the company's turnaround story as well. But you're really starting to see, uh, just going down the list here, some of that organic growth. Their biggest business segment, Bosch and Lom. It posted third quarter sales of $1.15 billion. That was organic sales growth of 3%. It's eighth consecutive quarter of organic growth. Um, for its Salix segment, that was $460 million in third quarter. This was year-over-year revenue growth of 2%. Again, nothing to write home about. But this was in spite of having losing market exclusivity for that particular drug. Um, also, too, in irritable bowel syndrome, with the diarrhea drug uh, jumped 11% over the prior year period. And so there's a number of different things where they are moving the needle. I think the other side of this equation is, and really, too, why you didn't see a huge Q3, was because they're still divesting of all of these assets that they had acquired previously. They're still discontinuing some lines. So you'll continue to see them kind of struggle and not be as consistent quarter over quarter. But I think they're headed in the right direction. So not a true comeback, but they are coming. I don't know. I give that comeback status. Uh, I think that's got to be one of the most defendable corporate rebrands of all time. You know, I know that on Market Foolery, you guys spend a good amount of time throwing shade when companies decide <laughs> for no reason. Trunk to trunk, uh, IHOB, another one. IHOB. You know, uh, but uh, Oath, Oath was another one. Yeah. You Jeez. can you can waste a lot of money on cups and mugs and things like that. But that sounds like it was money well spent uh, to maybe distance themselves from their shady past. I think so. And yeah, I think with new management in place, who's much more focused and really wants to grow the business organically is really the right direction for them. So all in all, they're on the right path. All right. We are going to wrap up the show with a discussion of some of the maybe more forgotten stories uh, from 2018. Anyone want to kick us off there, or things that were perhaps missed? Is that is that things where we're going with this one? Flew under the radar. Things that flew under the radar. Sure. Sounds yeah. like you want to well, go first. I mean, I've got one. I mean, this is I'm suffering from a little bit of recency bias here, but we get a lot of questions about it. And Markel Insurance is a company that does really just kind of sneak by everybody, just keeps on doing what they're doing, and and we tout it as being a baby Berkshire Hathaway more or less. And I think that's an apt comparison. Uh, but recently here. Uh, Markel had to announce that they are being investigated by U.S. and Bermuda authorities into loss reserves recorded with their uh, CATCO business, the the catastrophic insurance business. Uh, And so, this essentially goes back to an acquisition they made, uh, I think back in 2015, of of the company CATCO, and they rolled this reinsurance business into their business model. Um, And ultimately, Reinsurance and and um, things like retrocession insurance, which is essentially reinsurance for the reinsurers, and just <laughs> spreading that risk all the way around. Um, it it is difficult sometimes to actually calculate the reserves for businesses like that because you are making a lot of forecasts, a lot of guesses. Uh, you run into some years where there's some natural disasters that just take you take you really out of the running there, and I think we've seen that uh, certainly with California wildfires here are going to be a, a little bit a little bit of a problem. But ultimately, this investigation centers around just the fact that they don't they didn't reserve uh, correctly the loss reserves for this cat business. It sounds bad, but let's put it into context here. Uh, if you look at the total revenue attributed to this 
catastrophic business to Markel's entire business. The cat business generated $28.7 million in, in revenue in 2017. Markel's business overall generated $7.5 billion in revenue. So, this is a drop in the bucket. Um, now, with that said, anytime you hear investigation, I think shareholders often flee. Maybe it's a knee-jerk reaction, but I think in this case, uh, it's the wrong reaction. Because when you look at Markel on the whole, uh, they do a very good job of writing that specialty insurance that's gotten them to where they are today. It's allowed them to build this Markel venture side of the business, which is where they invest in uh, small businesses all over the country, things that range from bakeries to dredging equipment um, and everywhere in between. And we we know Markel. We've spoken with with Tom Gaynor there a number of times here on the investing team, and and it's just it's a very well run business. But I think this little investigation headline probably snuck under the radar for a lot of people. It didn't sneak under ours, of course, because we cover it, and it, it resulted Markel dropping ten percent in one day, which you never see. Uh, now, full disclosure, I actually bought that dip and added a few more shares of Markel in my portfolio because after reading uh, about you know this investigation, what it's centering around, I, I could tell that it's it's not really uh, that big of a deal at all. I mean, I, I sort of my litmus test here is if that cat business went away, would these guys be okay? And it, and it really wouldn't affect them much at all. Um, so probably snuck past a few people. Uh, but the diehards probably saw it, and, and for anyone who's interested in the business, it's worth knowing, and it's also worth knowing that this is probably something that's not going to affect this business in the long run. That's always reassuring if you're an investor. Uh, Shannon, on the healthcare side, what do you think flew under the radar this year? Yeah, and so this uh, particular story, the stock, uh, it actually came to mind from a conversation that I had with Chris Hill. Uh, Chris came to my desk one day, like he normally does, and it's very random. But he said, "Why is nobody talking about CVS and Aetna?" And I thought, "What do you mean nobody's talking about it?" He was like, "Nobody really cares," which I think really got for me at least the wheels going. Like, okay, what is it that nobody cares about, and is there actually something there? So this is my you kind of missed this. So just to catch our listeners up, uh, CVS did announce that they're going to be acquiring Aetna. This was actually uh, December of last year they announced this. Finally closed it, sixty nine billion dollar deal in cash and stock, and. One of the reasons why I think this is kind of floated under the radar is because people don't appreciate what this actually means. You've got CVS, a retail pharmacy that just acquired a major health insurance company. Now what you see and where you have kind of seen CVS positioning itself now, it is really, I think, on the verge of disrupting the healthcare delivery model. Because think about it, I can go to a retail pharmacy, I can go there, pick up my healthcare needs, if I have a some sort of medical condition, now they've got those clinics that are already in sight there. I can use my Aetna insurance, probably get some sort of discount for actually going into the CVS to begin with. And now I've got this entire ecosystem built up within CVS. I think this is huge. I think you're going to see cost savings. I think you're going to see margin improvement even for Aetna. And this, I think even in terms of like cost comparisons, it'll be much more transparent with the CVS Aetna model. I would not be surprised if you saw some of the other retail pharmacies and the health insurance companies do this too. When I hear that kind of vertical integration, I think a little bit about uh, Luxottica. I don't know how much you guys follow the sunglasses space, but oh. the conglomerate that owns most of the major sunglasses brands. They own Ray-Ban uh, and a lot of the other big, stylish uh, sunglasses. They also do all of the private label stuff for most luxury businesses. 
oh, and by the way, they own <laughs> Sunglasses Hut and all of these retail locations where those are sold. And as you might imagine, things work out pretty well when you own that many elements of the value chain. It sounds like that maybe different margin profile, but something yes. that might be happening over in the healthcare space. Yeah, and I mean, really, when you even just look at the stock itself, CVS, right now, it's trading at about 11 times forward earnings. And it pays a decent 2.7% dividend. I think in terms of just the growth opportunities that they have in this space, especially as so many tech companies and healthcare companies are trying to solve the healthcare pricing problem, I think you've got a company in CVS that could be positioned to really lead this space moving forward. I like that, and that, you know, you you said something there in in delivering healthcare and and tech. And I mean, I know you know Teladoc, and since yes. Mac isn't in here, he can't run into the studio <laughs> and tell me to shut up because I seem to bring this company up every show. But you're never going to be able to buy shares. <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> never, never. thankfully, I think my position is established. Um, but but. Teladoc is the exclusive provider of CVS's now virtual healthcare offering. And I really was interested in that from the perspective of the Aetna deal as well, because you saw CVS sort of make that rebrand to CVS Health being more comprehensive, offering more things. Teladoc did the same thing. Now they're Teladoc Health. It's all about being comprehensive and having a way to get to consumers wherever they may be. And I kind of liken that to retail and that word omnichannel that we hear all the time now. They're just figuring out how do we reach our consumers wherever they are and wherever we need to get them. Because uh, there are a lot of cases where it takes a little while for someone to get to the doctor. And I mean, having used a real life example with Teladoc myself, it, you know, it's it's easy to see the potential there for sure, and having that Aetna tie up now with CVS Health is is, I mean, it's really kind of exciting because you understand now you've got this huge demographic, and healthcare is one of the biggest <laughs> expenditures in our country on an annual basis by far. So, I'm excited about it. Yeah. All right, Nick, take us home. What do you got for under the radar in energy and industrials? Yeah. So uh, under the radar in energy and industrials, I'm going to talk about cobalt a little bit. So. Uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo is where 60% of the global supply of cobalt is located. Cobalt is a significant input um, in lithium-ion batteries, particularly as we look at EVs emerging over the next five to ten years, um, is a significant uh, uh, portion. It makes up about a third of most batteries, 20% in most cases. There have been some efforts to reduce the amount of cobalt that goes into these batteries. It is pretty expensive. Um, it makes up for uh, metals account for about 25% of, of the cost of a lithium ion battery, with cobalt being the highest portion of that. Um, it's pretty important uh, to stable your battery, make, keep your batteries stable uh, so you can repeat charges and, and it doesn't break down over time. Um, so, the, what's significant about this is, is, is the Congo, which as I mentioned, has 60% of the global supply, has tripled its royalties um, uh, about a month ago. Um, so, again, we're seeing them kind of maybe exercising a little bit of uh, uh, autonomy with taking some control over that supply, which as uh, uh, cobalt uh, demand increases over time, as EVs come to market, um, that that uh, royalty is going to become more significant. Um, you know, we mentioned wanting to reduce the amount of cobalt in these batteries, even under the most ambitious scenarios of that we can reduce the content. We're still going to need to double to meet demand for EVs coming forward in the future. So this is this is something that. Is a important resource today, but it will only become more important going into the future. And as royalties rise on, on these types of resources, it's going to create strain and the ability to kind of grow into what the market is, is going to really want out, out of these battery makers and EV. Folks. That sounds like something that is just prime for an episode of Industry Focus in 2019. <laughs> I think we may hit it. Maybe hit that one. Maybe hit some other uh, other. Uh, 
kind of inputs as well. Yeah, because because those spaces I think are just so tough for people to sift through. You know, you're you're working through supply chains at that point. You're not even really working through you know end consumer use and you know where where company might actually interact with um, the sales. So I mean, yeah, I'd love to see that episode. Yeah, and, and we've seen uh, several big players kind of move to try to lock up some supply. So, both Apple and Samsung have done that. There have been some talks about Tesla trying to make some moves to lock up supply. It's something to watch going forward for a lot of these tech players, anybody that's in the battery space. Do they have that supply locked up, particularly as demand is going to increase? While when you're in something like mining, the ability to bring new supplies on really quickly uh, is difficult. And it's really kind of the wild, wild west there. I mean, there's there's still significant issues with like child miners and things like that that have really caused some some folks to worry about, you know, even supplying um, their resources from there. So really something to follow, particularly as all of these battery intensive industries kind of evolve over the coming you know years. That forward look is the perfect way to key up our third episode, which will be dropping tomorrow. Uh, and that's our stocks to watch in 2019. Uh, and just kind of some reckless predictions and things like that. Uh, but we're going to wrap the discussion uh, for this episode here. Uh, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you want to reach out and say, hey, you can just email over at industryfocus at pool.com or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. And the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work. For the hosts, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Cool